So um, part of my little talk for the afternoon, we have actually covered some of that when we started uh, expanding on the Heart Sutra. But I wanted to begin um, with a quote from my original teacher, uh, Kalu Rinpoche. I met him in 1977. He's really my root teacher. And uh, it's a quote that a lot of you might have heard, but it's still such a powerful description of reality. And he says, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is one reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we realize that we are no thing. And being no thing, we are everything. That is all. So this morning, uh, we spent the morning kind of, you know, looking a little bit into how we're caught, you know, from the original freedom that we're born with, how we get caught, and then how the society as a whole perpetuates not only the being caught, but intensifies suffering that has to do with preference. Oppression throughout the world is an extension of that ego structure disconnected from the ground. Everywhere. And there is something uh, very profound that has to do with what we were talking about, just pointing to briefly about the primal feminine and masculine energies, that there is an imbalance actually that's uh, felt throughout humanity and and beyond in the way uh, our planet manifests right now. And so... um, as I was describing before, not about gender, but just the kinetics of how energy is, that the feminine principle is this vast, diffuse uh, space that is the origin of what later becomes uh, directional and form. Because we don't know our ground, this spaciousness. Because we are disconnected from that, we are basically experiencing the other pole of manif- the, the, the victorial manifestation, which you would say is the uh, masculine energy divorced from the feminine in a particular way. The, for us to know the play of the two, we, know, we need to know emptiness. The feminine dissolves and holds the wisdom and then the masculine energy is directional and has the skillful means and the compassion. And everything is manifesting as a combination of these two movements of diffusing and then coming directional and into form. This breathing movement is, the whole reality is this. So... um, how 
our world is manifesting right now is a direct uh, result of the disconnection from the ground. And at least we can only speak for ourselves as human beings that we are disconnected. I can't really speak about other beings. But what, are, what we're doing with our minds is of paramount importance, and particularly at this time in the world. There's not a lot of time for us to wake up. We have to do it now. The pivotal experience is having at least a little glimpse of that openness, of that spaciousness, of that vastness. That, even a little glimpse, begins to undermine this rigid structure that we are so identified with. So, for us to come into an opportunity to actually even hear about this possibility is amazingly rare. If you think about the rest of humanity throughout the world, there are so many people that are just barely surviving and totally caught up in just are they going to be alive the next minute or not. I mean, there's just warfare and persecution throughout the world. We are also um, looking at this disappearance of indigenous cultures. That's the, you know, the part of our humanity that it's actually attuned and uh, still relating to the earth in the original way. And yet, this whole field of awareness that we are is a single sphere. So what we do with our own minds affects the whole. And so, for us to be sitting here in this circle, we are so incredibly lucky. So few people actually have the opportunity, the luxury, the leisure time to come and spend a day looking at this, contemplating this, having the resources to practice, to develop these skills, incredibly rare. So with this privilege of having access to these kinds of teachings, then you know, comes a responsibility. And in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a term samaya, which means commitment. And you can, um, the kind of more surface understanding of samaya is, you know, you do what your teacher tells you, you follow the rules, you do the practices. At a much deeper level, samaya means to live from that which you have experienced. So as our spiritual practice unfolds, as we reach deeper and deeper levels of understanding, then we want to live from that understanding. And that kind of delude ourselves into, that, into thinking that we don't know. The, as we go along and the understanding deepens, whenever we go off track, boy, we know it. Often we get sick. <laughs> the body uh, will, will let us know if we're off track. 
but I just want to encourage you, um, and this work, you know, of, of seeing how the ethical basis that arises from our spiritual practice, how we live that out in the world, it's not something that we can do single-handedly. The task of what the world needs right now is way beyond any single person. The only way we can do that is by being part of community, by joining others mm-hmm. that are trying to take some action. So if we, if we just sit with all of this by ourselves, we just get depressed and immobilized. So um, what we're doing today is just uh, opening up these possibilities within each of us, and then, you know, knowing that we want to continue to join with others so that this awareness that is us will continue to be elucidated, that it will continue to come through the scaffolding of structures that is obscuring it. Because that really is our way out. You know, That is what we can offer as human beings to the whole of this uh, biosphere, that we are capable of that. Uh, I don't think other beings, they're dependent on, depending on us doing it. And they're already at the effect of us not doing it. So part of the, uh, uh, what we see in the world, uh, when I was talking about the masculine and feminine energies, is that the disconnection from the feminine, the ignorance of our empty, spacious nature, it's as if that remains in our shadow. And because we are not aware of it, unconsciously we oppress it. So the, the oppression that we see, a lot of it has to do with an oppression of the feminine at its primal level. The natural world, indigenous people, any kind of vulnerability is uh, oppressed. And, uh, and, and I, I believe that this, this is directly related to the disconnection from knowing the emptiness, from knowing Prajnaparamita. There is a reason, you know, there's a reason why she is called Prajnaparamita, that state of knowing, sublime knowing, that is based on the experience of emptiness. And the whole of reality is not just emptiness. Sometimes, you know, one thing that can happen is as we progress and we start to have the experience of emptiness, is to then get attached to that. And when we get very attached to that, we can get kind of frozen sometimes into a non-conceptual state that it's still the ordinary mind attached to something, but it's not making any thoughts. It's not true timeless awareness. Timeless awareness has a flexibility and all the qualities of compassion, love, capacity, courage. It's all part of its own nature. So when we find ourselves sometimes, and I certainly have spent plenty of time stuck in some retreat, duh, you know, uh, with my mind not producing anything but being very, very narrow. So that's not the real free emptiness, you know, the, what, what we refer to as the natural state. Um, So maybe, um, so, the, so the experience of emptiness, that, ha- having even a glimpse of that, then one begins to have the possibility. At first we get attached to that, 
But then over time, you can see that that emptiness and that spacious quality is coexisting with everything else that's happening. So even if we have some deep, you know, uh, opening into that, we still have our own psychological stuff, the family troubles, so it's still, the whole drama is still going on. But it's being held now. It's like the shift of being totally identified with the content of the drama relaxes. And now where we're perceiving from, if you will, which is, I mean, language is limited, it's not, we're not in the roller coaster for the ride. There's a a spaciousness, knowing quality that can hold it. So sometimes it's very hard to tell the level of development of somebody, even if they're going through some difficulty, because they may not necessarily outwardly show that, but yet they're holding their experience with a lot of space. And that already is transformation. That's, that's a, uh, a result of the uh, recovering of our wakefulness, of our true nature. So, so in, in terms of how our practice progresses, you know, in the traditional Vipassana way, first we learn to concentrate and bring in the mind over and over and over. And that piece about concentration will serve us to our dying days. Even when things open up completely and a lot of methods go, once in a while we have to go back to that because the mind, you know, depending on the conditions of our lives, can get so thrown off that going back to the concentration really is very helpful. At some point, there is, timeless awareness becomes so continuous that, you know, we don't get thrown off anymore, but most of us will be dealing with, you know, having to go and practice again and again to uh, steady the mind and then um, go from there. So first there's a concentration, and then there's the, uh, the aim or the effort to not interfere with what we're experiencing. So we cannot see the truth if we're tinkering and trying to change this or modify like this. I'll only say this much, but I won't say that. Strategizing. All that strategy keeps us completely caught up. We can't get off the treadmill. So, first the concentration, then the uh, attitude of not interfering, so you can really see the whole panorama of your experience. So you, you can be informed by the truth of what it is that's actually there. And the truth, sometimes even if it's extremely painful, when we really land on the truth, and especially if we've been disconnected from it and we finally get it, even though it's painful, it is so freeing that there's some comfort that comes just from knowing what's true for us at that moment. So then this begins, this is a whole process of insight, where we begin to understand ourselves, we begin to understand our lives, and we begin to understand the greater life. So the process of insight, you know, is is open-ended. Then, you know, there's through that, and certainly uh, it's not like sometimes people will have these experiences early on, sometimes it will take longer, but once you start to feel uh, to have the experience, so that spacious nature or, or what we refer to as emptiness the fact that even though I'm talking, you know, in between the 
words or something. There is some space here. What's there? What's in that interval? The space between the words is the same space that's between you and the object when we were doing that meditation. What's in that interval? That's not filled with something. That's what we came here as. In that space is that. So, once we really have that experience, we begin to really understand the limitations of the conceptual mind. To see this huge scaffolding of ideas about everything. Not only do we have a name for everything, but we, we think we know how it's all related, and we think we can predict the future. And, you know, I mean, it's just extrapolation about extrapolation. I mean, it's almost like one of those cartoons where you can get a big bubble. I mean, it's a huge bubble of associations <laughs> and so on, the scaffolding that we carry. <coughs> it is revolutionary when you see that this whole thing is made up in the moment. It is all past experience. So in the moment, in this moment, with us sitting right here, looking at each other, this is brand new. Utterly unknown and utterly free. This now. If you can feel this quality that isn't dredging up the past, just this, this moment, this is it. This wakefulness. Our touching this transforms us and transforms the space we, are, we live in. And I want to tell, read you something from Dogen, from Zen, that I read over and over and over to everybody <laughs> because it is so beautiful and affirming. Dogen uh, was the originator of Soto Zen, and this is from his book, The Wholehearted Way, There is a path through which the incomparable awareness of all things returns to the person in zazen, in meditation, and whereby that person and the enlightenment of all things intimately and imperceptibly assist each other. Grasses and trees fences and walls demonstrate and exalted for the sake of living beings, both ordinary and sage. And in turn, living beings, both ordinary and sage, express and unfolded for the sake of grasses and trees, fences and walls. The active realization embodied and supported in what they call self-fulfilling samadhi is really when you see through includes not only humans and other creatures 
This is what I was saying, you know, this whole sphere of awareness is a single sphere. It includes the rocks, the minerals, everything participates in awakening, everything. So this self-fulfilling samadhi includes not only humans and other creatures, but even the land and soil, the grasses and trees, fences and walls, tiles and pebbles that Dogen mentions. Even things usually considered inanimate objects in Western philosophy vitally partake of this awakening and mutually resonate. So the place, once it starts, it helps us to get back. To encourage the subtle and mysterious Buddha guidance or influence in us all. I wanted to tell you uh, just an experience I had. Uh, I was in a Dzogchen retreat at Ojai in uh, Southern California, the Ojai Foundation, and that land um, has been tended to. I think it was a sacred uh, uh, land to the native people uh, for ceremony. And then many different spiritual teachers have gone through there, and the people who actually live there now and continue to do council practice uh, have a way of relating that really is an indigenous way of relating to the land. I have to tell you, I have never been in land. The land, the soil is so relaxed. The bunnies would be sitting somewhere and the bunnies would be on their backs <laughs> with their legs, their bellies exposed, in sunning themselves. We were having dinner and two big snakes were going into their hole right next to us. At dusk, the owl would sit on the tree right by where we were. The bobcats would walk by. I have never seen a place like that. And knowing Dogen and what he's saying there, the resonance, the way humans have attended to that land, it has raised the whole evolutionary uh, stage to a whole different level. Where the violence that we are accustomed to wasn't really present there. I'm sure the bobcat is still eating some rabbits. Or, but however it's happening, there's a level of relaxation that I have never seen anywhere. And I've been in wildernesses, you know, pure wildernesses, not that relaxed. So there is an example of the impact that we as human beings have on the environment. What is possible? And so, you know, we look at the natural world and we say, well, the violence, a lot, some of it gratuitous violence. You know, the orcas, for example, will kill uh, a, a blue whale a baby and just eat the bottom lip and leave the rest of the body, you know. To, I mean, things like that that are still part of the natural world that are not just part of the basic need to survive, uh, it's almost like a certain level of gratuitous violence. And my guess is that as we evolve, that also will disappear. And what we're doing with our minds, just to see what happened at the Ojai Foundation, that land and the animals, already, uh, for me, points the way of a possibility and seeing the impact of how our care and our relationship with the land, uh, we, we co-evolve together. We evolve. 
So um, training in, in the recognition. So to the little bit that it happens for you, that emptiness opens and you can see just the space between your thoughts to the degree that you can actually feel that quality more and more and more and more as that becomes more and more established at the moment of our death, even if you're suffering, even if you get totally caught and are kind of crunched up (laughs) with pain or drugs or whatever, the minute we die and there's sort of a a release of the the, um, attachment to the body, it's like that state of awareness comes up and they say, you know, sort of like you're just jumping right back into the lap of the mother. So the... uh, the, the training in this, it's not only for this life, you know, that it helps us and it helps everything around, but it's also at the mom- moment of our death so that we don't have to keep repeating the same patterns of suffering beyond this life. And for some, you know, reincarnation may be a reality or not, and, but, you know, for those of you that it, for whom it is, uh, this is a very powerful practice. So, um, and then you know, we how we are in the world uh, as a result of of this uh, practice. Then we are informed and empowered again by the sheer capacity that arises from that uh, ground of our being. So then, our work in the world, how we how we move in the world is that much more harmonious, effective, helpful, non-harming. So I'm going to stop here, have a chance to just have a little bit of um, uh, discussion, and then we'll move into the final exercise for the afternoon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.